Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 say this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So I'm going to get right to it. So I'd like to start off with fun facts. Did you know that shortly after the Civil War, it was estimated that one-third to one-half of the nation's currency was counterfeit? Did you know that when the Secret Service was founded in 1865, its primary task was to minimize the amount of counterfeit currency? I never knew that. Counterfeiters are so advanced in today's time, they now use a technique that involves bleaching legitimate money and altering the bills. If someone has bleached and altered a $5 bill to look like a $100 bill, it's just about impossible to tell. Only under the testing of certain light will the hologram display an image of Abraham Lincoln who appears on the $5 bill instead of Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if you've ever seen a counterfeit dollar bill. I have, and I absolutely could not tell. But it's made as an exact replica. It has the exact weight, the exact markings, exact emblems, the exact numbers, texture and feel. Everything on the outside looks exactly like the real thing. You cannot tell it's a counterfeit unless you put it through all the testing processes and look to the inner layer of what it consists of. It's fake. The scary thing about a fake is that it seems legitimate. Products are bought and sold by the exchanging of fake currency every day. In most cases, the spender thinks they own real money and the receiver thinks they're obtaining real money. In the same way counterfeit money is circulating in our bank accounts, counterfeit Christianity is circulating in our hearts. I know what most of you may be thinking, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I'm good, this message for me already isn't for me tonight. But oh Christian, you're the very person this could be for, so don't check out. I think there's something in this uh, message tonight for everybody. What we fail to realize is elements of our Christianity can become fake, even as a person who's saved. I'm not here to question your salvation. It's going to be up to God tonight, what he lays on your heart, to what extent and to what elements you may feel convicted of, if any at all. I know this directly to be true. For me personally, in my case, I, I grew up in your typical Christian home, where being a Christian was what's right, what's normal, what makes sense. I grew up listening to my favorite preacher, Adrian Rogers, from here at Bellevue on Sundays. I remember at the age of seven praying the prayer of salvation. I've lived a Christian life. I've known all about God my whole life, but did you know you can know all about God and still not have a relationship with Him? 
I personally lived in Christianity for so long that I believed I was a Christian, but looking back all those years when I was behind closed doors, there was no relationship there. I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for every person in this room. They're all made in the image of you. Thank you for the ability to come and to worship and to sing beautiful music in praise to you like we have thus far. God, I pray that you eliminate every ounce of ego and pride that's on this platform so that only you can be heard from tonight. God, stir in our hearts, stir in our minds, stir in our very souls. We're here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of tonight's sermon is Devoutly Deceived. I'm going to start by reading from Genesis 3, 1 through 7 to set the tone. It's the very first recording of deceit in all the Bible. It started in the garden. God's word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, she picked the fruit and ate. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I want to ask you guys a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud. Do you think that Satan hates religion? The answer is absolutely not. Satan loves religion, which brings us right to point number one. For tonight's sermon. Satan uses religion to entice. Satan uses religion to entice. You can see here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that from the start, immediately before Adam and Eve even get settled in, Satan presents them with a religious offer. You can see here that the first temptation man is faced with in the Garden of Eden was a religious temptation. It was a temptation not to be ungodly, but a temptation to be godly. It wasn't a temptation to make them fall, but one to make them climb, to ascend upwards. One of the most enticing things about religion is it can stroke the ego. It inflates our pride. This is crucial to recognize because it's often when we're filled with pride, we become the self-driven captain of our own ship. Drift off the course of God's design, and nothing good happens outside God's design. We often find ourselves in places we don't want to be, doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Nothing good takes place outside God's design. We see that here from the start with Adam and Eve and the desire to be like God. This sets the tone for our primary text tonight. So turn with me to Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Now, Pastor Andrew Cross has preached through the Sermon on the Mount prior, but tonight I'm going to be focusing on this text in a specific way. I definitely encourage you to ask Andrew if you can find a way to watch that sermon. Matthew 7, 
21 through 23 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practitioners of lawlessness. Verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So right off the bat, we see Jesus makes a clear distinction between the Father, the Father's will, and the self-serving religion that we can become enticed by. Jesus makes a clear distinction between the Father's will and self-serving religion. So what is the Father's will? The Father's will is that you would know him by trusting his son, Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to trust in Jesus Christ? It means not to trust in yourself. It means not to trust in yourself. Point number two, religion doesn't require a relationship. Religion doesn't require a relationship. We see in verse 22, this person doesn't say, but Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus, you paid my debt. Jesus, you made right what is wrong. You atoned for my sins. No, no. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Did I not go to church every Sunday? Did I not speak the lingo? Did I not look the part? Did I not have the fish on my car? I've always wanted one of those fishes. Did I not have a Bible verse in my bio? Did I not post on Easter? Did I not read my Bible plan? Did I not complete it? Did I not get baptized? Did I not go to that summer retreat? Did I not tithe 10%? Was I not a Sunday school all-star? Did I not lead a life group? Did I not carry a good note for others to hear during worship? I don't have to worry about that one. Um, did I not have the aesthetic? Jesus says, depart, you practitioners of lawlessness, for a reason. He isn't concerned with our aesthetic. He's concerned with what we practice, how we live our life. He's not concerned with what we claim. Hits me pretty hard. You see, that's the problem. We get so caught up in the aesthetic. We end up enamored by ourselves and not Jesus. More enamored by ourselves. The origin of our works comes from a place of self-exaltation rather than a result of salvation. There was a man who found an abandoned suitcase containing $10 million in an alleyway dumpster. The man took the suitcase and buried it. He stored it away in a place only he knew about. He spent the next several years blowing through all the money he had in his checking and savings account, maxing out credit cards without batting an eye. He knew he had the $10 million to fall back on. That once he used up all the money he'd worked for his whole career, he could ride out retirement on his $10 million sense of security. Once he emptied everything out with a smile on his face, he eagerly dug up the suitcase and made his way to his new bank to open a newly slated account with his new wealth. Once all the paperwork was filled out, the last thing to do was to make the deposit. Upon processing, the banker notified the man that his deposit was nothing more than a suitcase filled with counterfeit money. 
The man, devastated, realized his careless mistake. His stored away wealth throughout all those years wasn't authentic, but fake. All the while, he was oblivious. It never crossed his mind he had it wrong. Until the judgment day of the banker. But by then, it was too late. He wasted all of his money and wasted and tossed away his life. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practitioners of lawlessness. Devoutly deceived. Point number three, culture Christianity lacks truth. Culture Christianity lacks truth. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall. Here Jesus shows us the contrast between culture Christianity and biblical Christianity. One is based on the solid foundation of truth. And the other is based on a fictitious faith. When you believe wrong, you're going to live wrong by result. When you are devoutly deceived, you end up with a false sense of security like the man that found the $10 million. A false sense of security rooted in a shallow faith. The point Jesus is making in these words is that building one's life on obedience to his teaching is wise and will sustain his disciples and the challenges that they will inevitably encounter in life. Just as building one's house on a foundation of rock will secure it against the forces of nature that will assault it. Sometimes we Christians get more concerned with looking like a Christian than we actually are with being one. Have you ever wondered what a church full of Pharisees would look like? Number one, they would all attend every service. Secondly, they would all tithe. Third, they'd all work in the church. And four, they'd all go to hell. Some people go to hell with a chest full of Sunday school attendance pins. We live in a dangerous time period, a period where truth is fluid. There's, it's the era of my truth, your truth. We all have our own truths. It's crazy. It's crazy. Point number four is objective truth demands belief in God. Truth matters. Objective truth demands belief in God. That's our fourth point. Objective truth demands belief in God. Absolute truth is what Francis Schaeffer used to call and refer to as true truth. Not just truth for you or truth for me, but absolute truth whether you believe it or you like it or not. Now, one of the powerful things about our day is that a lot of very influential people and millions of very influenced people don't believe in such a thing. Culture doesn't believe in truth anymore, at least for the majority. Not just our truth or truth for us, but the truth the truth, true truth, truth that will be determined to be true whether we or anyone else believe it or like it or not. It doesn't matter if you like it. 
not just our truth or truth for us, but the truth. If the supreme creator God exists, then there is truth with a capital T. God is simply there. He must be taken as he is. We do not make him or shape him or define him. He makes all things. He shapes. He defines. So we come into a universe that is full of givens, things that already are. God is simply there, and he's made the world one way, not another way. And he and his ways are the truth. That is what you embrace when you embrace the supremacy of God. The Apostle Paul writes these stunning words in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, I write to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church of God is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, the support and protector of the true truth in the world. It's the church. Why is this? Because the church is the household of God and God is truth. What he is and what he says and what he does defines truth. So those who submit to him and listen to him speak his word and live his way, those people are the pillar and bulwark of the truth. This is one reason why God and his church are so unpopular today. It's one reason why culture Christianity is on a rapid rise. God and his church represent absolute claims on on people's minds, wills, and emotions, the things that we'd like to protect the most. If God exists, we are not God. If God is true, then we cannot decide what is true. It's out of our hands. We have no say in it. There's no vote. The universe is not a democracy. Truth matters. Point number five. There's a difference between bearing and wearing. Point number five, there's a difference between bearing and wearing. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's see what Luke 9, 23 through 25 says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a... What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits himself, loses himself? So here we clearly see the cost of being a biblical Christian. The cross was meant for death. To take up our cross is to die daily. The cause of God and truth is advanced in the world, not through timid, indecisive, lukewarm Christianity or lukewarm Christians. It's advanced through conviction like Paul's when he said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded. I am persuaded. It is advanced through conviction like Martin Luther's. On pain of death, he was commanded by Pope and Emperor to recant for his biblical understanding and listen to how he responded. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scripture or by evident reason, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my conscience, is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Is your conscience captive to the Word of God? When I read that, 
I feel fire from that man who has a conscience captive to the Word of God. You see, I've been a Christian my whole life, but mine never was. It, until I received a cancer diagnosis that flipped my world upside down, I realized where I was really at with God. I was enticed by religion that didn't require a relationship. So I didn't have one. I was a culture Christian that lacked truth. I was God of my own life, bearing and wearing a hollow cross. There was a period of time where I lost my health completely, about seven years ago. Uh, I gotta be careful when I think about it because it's so vivid and so clear. It's like it happened yesterday. I was an athlete. I used to uh, go to the gym on a daily basis and there was one night seven years ago, it was on New Year's. I chose not to go out with my friends. I chose to go to the gym. I'm in the gym by myself, it's midnight. What a psycho. I don't know why I was there that late. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, I was there. Just doing my normal thing, normal day. Uh, I don't know where I'm walking to get uh, water from the water fountain. And I just, I don't know. It, it felt like my chest out of nowhere just started. It's almost like an elephant. You, you hear that phrase, an elephant sitting on your chest? It felt like my heart was being ripped out of my chest, and I just collapsed to the floor helplessly. My vision, I'll never forget it, it dialed down to about the size of a penny. Thank God these guys were walking in the gym as I collapsed. So they called 911. And I just remember laying there, and my life became simplified in a split second. I realized that everything in a split second that I had been living for meant nothing if I was going to die. At that point in my life, if God would have came down and said, Alex, tell me what you want, you can have it. I had A, B, C, and D already. I was happy with my life. I had good things going for me. Um, but I was living for the wrong reasons. I was living for what people thought about me. I cared more about the opinion of man than I did God. And I wouldn't have ever told you that or admitted that, but just if I looked at my life in an honest way, that was what was clear. I realized that everything I had been living for, what people thought about me, my bank account, my car, what type of car I drive, what type of apartment I have, None of it mattered if I was going to die. Fast forward a little bit of time after I kind of recovered from that episode. Um, it's amazing how pride can be so deep. Even after that, I wasn't completely there yet. It took a cancer diagnosis to um, rock my world. I remember being here at Bellevue Baptist Church on a Sunday night. It was a, uh, a prayer service. And there was a man and his family being prayed for. Uh, he had found out he had terminal cancer. And I remember sitting there as the whole church is laying hands on him and praying. I remember kind of peeking my eye open a little bit and thinking to myself, just inner thoughts, like, Alex, what would you do if that was you? How would you handle that? Just a thought that crossed my mind. I had no idea the next morning at a regular doctor's visit, I would have a doctor pull my blood and look me in my eyes and tell me I had cancer. It felt like a bad dream. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it showed me where I was really at with God. It showed me how fake I really was. I've lived my whole life being a Christian, going, going to church every Sunday, um, you know, doing everything, checking off my good Christian checklist. You know, you know how that goes. And um, 
but I was here for the wrong reasons. I was here to make friends. I was here to meet a girl. I was here to uh, socialize, social status, all that, that, that stuff that I wasn't here for the right reasons. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. What does that look like? Deny yourself requires, after all, self-denial. We must lay the axe to the root of every tree that bears bad fruit in us. Every sin must be slain. Every part of me that does not reflect him must be renounced. And not just once, but daily. How many times have we had an impulse to deny ourselves? put down the drink, to give, give away the bonus to somebody else, to go talk to that neighbor, to confess that embarrassing sin, only to have some part of us like Peter begin to question our good resolves. Now, now, there's got to be a better way to do this, a more comfortable way to glory, isn't there? Surely we can grasp the crown without bearing the cross. No need to be so extreme because moderation in all things, right? The devil may be a lion, but rarely we hear his roar. More often he appears in our most plausible reasons to avoid self-denial. If you want to delight the devil, refuse to deny yourself. But if you want to defy your ancient foe, if you want to scorn the one who hates your soul, if you want to cut off the arms that would drag you to hell, then bend down and pick up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, biblically speaking and historically speaking, when one bore a cross, it signified four things. Number one, it signified opposition. A cross was used to execute criminals who had the state of Rome in opposition to them. Number two is shame. This execution was reserved for the worst criminals. Um, the victim was usually naked and hung there for hours. Number three is suffering. This kind of execution was purposefully designed to prolong excruciating pain. And number four, death. The aim of crucifixion was death. It was an absolute death sentence, um, not torture, followed by release. It was death. So it means to treasure Jesus more than we treasure human approval, honor, comfort, and life. What I had to learn the hard way was all the things I was living for like human approval, honor, comfort, and life. They were very temporal, and they meant nothing in the realm of eternal, especially not in the eyes of man, for man. Our suffering is not a tribute to Jesus unless we endure it because we cherish Jesus. Taking up our cross means Jesus has become more precious to us than the approval, honor, and comfort by way of man and life. This is the very mark of the new self that it treasures Jesus in his words more than a lifetime of this world and its glory and what it has to offer. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow me, what does that mean? Following Jesus entails both obeying his teachings and imitating his example, but this is not the sum of the matter. For obeying and imitating are not ends in themselves, but are means to a greater end. The end goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus himself, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, to act as he acted, 
to desire what he desired. As, as John puts it, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. One of the saddest commentaries on the church in the West today is the weakness of our faith. Secularism has seriously eroded our belief in the almighty, miracle-working God. The God of the Bible who answers the prayers of his people and intervenes in the affairs of the world. We have embraced a reductionism that acknowledges faith in Christ is essential for salvation, but ignores the necessity of living by faith thereafter. How many of us really live each day with a confident trust in God that'll do what he says and promises he will do? How many of us take him at his word and act with the expectation that he'll be faithful? This is the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to exercise as we seek and we follow him. See, while Christians are confused about what it means to be real, Jesus is not. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. I've learned that it's upon the reflection of my own sin and my own fruit and honest lens that I see the radiance of my Savior. Seeing what my fruit really is. When I went through the hard times that I went through and death became a reality, it just wasn't something I ever thought about. I mean, you hear things about, we all have somebody that we know, family member, something that has cancer, or something like that happens, and you never think it would be you. I certainly never thought it would be me. Um, but when death becomes a reality, it forces you to think about it and face it in a way that you just don't when it's not on the forefront of your life, knocking on your door. And I know that my fruit was fruit of self-righteous, you know, works-based things. And I almost cringe at myself when I try to think, what could I offer a holy and sovereign God? What is the best five minutes in my life that I could offer? If you think about it, I don't even know what I got. I mean, I know, I, I, seriously, I walked an old lady across the street one time, and I know that's like a catchy thing. What could I offer? It's funny, but I mean, seriously, what if you sit down and you think honestly about your life, what's the best thing that I've done? And try to imagine yourself giving that to a sovereign God. Amen. My Christian intentionality went about as far as the Bible verse in my Instagram biography. My Christian aesthetic wanted the bliss of Easter morning without the pain of Good Friday. Everything seemed like a, a chore sometimes. You know, that dreadful to-do list. Uh, how does one get past that Christian checklist, that lackluster pl plateau of the good Christian checklist? Jesus gives us the example. Aren't you glad that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't sustained or led by his feelings, as we are when it comes to our to-do list? Jesus was sustain sustained by commitment to the objective. That's the answer. I hear people all the time say, you know, just reading my Bible feels like a chore. Doing all this stuff, it, you know, I do it just to check it off the list. But how do you get past that? 
Jesus is the example. Jesus wasn't led or sustained by his feelings. When you feel like it's a dreadful chore, it's because you're being led by your feelings. But Jesus gives us the example and his commitment to his objective and what he did for you and I. You see, you can fake pray, you can fake kindness, fake giving, fake service, fake religion, fake seeing, fake whatever, but you cannot fake a real and genuine relationship with Jesus. I like to think, I, I heard this from Donna Gaines, I, I often secretly tune in to the Bellevue Women's Ministry. <laughs> Don't tell anybody though. I just think she's a solid teacher, okay? So, uh, she said something that spoke to me one time. She said, there's 96 15-minute segments in a day. What are those going to? Well, the more you talk to me, the more you'll realize how transparent and raw I am about this stuff. There was a point in my life where pornography got more than my God got from me. I started to put my life under a microscope, behind closed doors. It's not about what you claim. You see, when Jesus says, depart from me, you practitioners of lawlessness, he uses the word practitioners for a reason. He's not concerned with what you claim. Because on the outside, just like that counterfeit $100 bill, um, outwardly, it's a good Christian. Inwardly, no relationship. Some people today mistakenly equate obedience with legalism. Legalism comes from trying to earn God's favor by obedience and sacrifice. The, the Pharisees were famous for this. We can easily fall into it today by insisting on commitment and obedience without grounding it in grace and love. Obedience is offered in love. Obedience offered in love. I say that in a sense of how it should be. Obedience offered in love is the fruit of grace and is the antidote to legalism. When we carefully look at the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and the call to follow me, as he says, that call takes on much greater clarity. It is indeed a call to walk as Jesus walked, to live a life of radical and faithful love. Once we truly grasp this, our first reaction is likely to be one of dismay. If we are at all aware of the depth of indwelling sin and dysfunctions that plague our lives, we know it is impossible for us to fulfill such a call to, to do so as Jesus did. Yet this reaction is actually healthy. It's what led me back to the gospel, the gospel that I'd heard all my life. How does one hear the gospel all their life and not have it? And, and I say that in the personal case of myself. Thank God for that healthy reality. This reaction is healthy because it's based in reality. It's indeed impossible for us to live this way. And that's precisely the point. Aren't you guys glad that you have a God that loves you to that point? I know I am. Praise God that he's a God that loves us enough to graciously give us the invitation to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him.